Thank you, Seth and the worship team. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin this evening. Father God, you are worthy to be praised. Lord, you are worthy to count the, the blessings that you have given us, 10,000 and more. But it all begins with your son, Jesus Christ. The fact that we are sinners destined for hell and in need of a savior. And you reached down because of your love. Took the payment on the cross. And then rose again on the third day. Lord, what more do we have to sing of than that? And to give thankfulness and, and to bless your holy name. Lord, we praise you. We give you all the glory this evening. We give you all the glory for everything that you're doing around this world and, and how you're working and moving for your name. Lord, bless this time as we gather together and open your word and, and, and glean from it. Lord, teach us, instruct us, convict us, encourage us. In your name I pray. Well, it is a, a privilege to be here with you this evening. Uh, my name is Trevor Amak, and we are missionaries to Southeast Asia. Um, there is a specific country. It's not just broadly, but for security reasons, we, we stick to Southeast Asia. Uh, as Pastor Tom mentioned, we have seven in our family. Uh, you see them out there. We have uh, my wife, Haley, uh, the better half. And then uh, my oldest, we'll go oldest to youngest, we have Olivia, Jackson, Parker, Riker, Tatum, and Addie. And then you'll see up there uh, a, a girl by the name of Lysia. Uh She is a, a Kamai daughter. She wasn't able to make it to us or with us uh, uh, this trip, uh, but we are in the process of adopting her. We weren't able to get her passport. So you can be praying for her. Uh, the Lord kind of dropped her in our lap. And uh, out of obedience, we are, are loving her, and she is definitely our child. And we miss her greatly. We Zoom with her every morning or evening, I guess, our time, morning, her time. And, uh, and you just be praying for a couple things. One, for her salvation. She's 12 years old. Um, she grew up in a Buddhist home and has been basically homeless for, I don't know, uh, several years now. And so as she's coming to our family, coming to our lives, our children love her, she loves us, and uh, we are constantly sharing the gospel with her. And so just pray that, that the gospel, that the Lord would get a hold of her heart and the Holy Spirit would move her into salvation. And then also just pray, if you wouldn't mind, for uh, the complete adoption. There's a lot that needs to happen uh, for that to take place. One, we need to find the mother. We don't know where the mother's at. She needs to sign documents uh, to, to sign her over to us for full adoption but she is currently legally uh, ours. Uh, we're legal guardians of her at this point. So that is our family. Um, the, the population kind of give you a little bit about where we serve in our country. Uh, there's 16.7 million people in our country. 2.2 million are living in the capital city. Uh, and it's estimated to rise by about 7 million by the, by the year 2030. Uh, so a huge influx there. 97.9% of them are Buddhists. 2% are Islam and 0.3% are Christian, and that is a very broad term that's used there. A lot of it's Mormons and Catholicism and Jehovah's Witness are all lumped into that, that term Christian. And so 
uh, you can imagine the, the true gospel is, is much less than even that 0.3%. So kind of give you a little bit of a glimpse of our everyday life. Um, motos, way of life. Uh, there's no, no uh, age restriction on uh, when they can drive. So our two oldest have their own motos. And uh, we pile kids on the back of four motos. And we drive around the city and get from point A to point B. Um, and sometimes it can be treacherous. If you've heard, I was in a moto accident right before we came here. So uh, God's protection is, is good. We shop in the open markets. Our kids love to see the, the live fish as they flop around early in the morning before, before they go bad and die. Uh, our, uh, we like to explore. It's home to the world's largest religious building. Um, and so we get to explore a lot. We get to eat lots of delicious food like spider and rotten fruit. Uh, it, does, it, it tastes as good as it looks, just so you guys know. Um, we are involved in, you know, we're, we're constantly doing language study. Um, it's uh, tutors come into our house, uh, helping with our kids, helping with us. We have people coming over all the time, trying to learn the common language. And uh, it helps us with our conversational language uh, to get better at, at speaking. So we have people over, we do food. Uh, food's a big culture, uh, epicenter of their culture. So we always, you know, gather around food. That's never a bad thing. Um, and then every Sunday we go out to the province, which is about an hour and a half away from our home, and we worship out there. We lead uh, a church service. Um, I'm currently uh, discipling a, a, a young man that is about to take over this church, and uh, so you can be praying about that as well. Uh, discipleship is a major part of, of what we're doing in our country, and it goes from all age groups. From youth group, we have a youth group that's in our house uh, that's filled with 20 uh, nationals. Uh, all of them, well, primarily all of them are not saved, uh, but the Lord is, is working. The Holy Spirit's working in their life. Uh, they're starting to become more engaged, answering questions, and we praise the Lord for that. Um, do a lot of ministry and discipleship with men. Uh, constantly meeting. These are actually some of my teachers uh, that I'll tell you a little bit about with the story of Hope Academy that we, we go around training. But I meet with them regularly to go over our curriculum and, and make sure that they're being encouraged and being trained and, and, and discipled in that way. Um, and then we do a lot of one, one discipleship. If you get my newsletters, this is the gentleman that was about to walk away from the, uh, not the Lord's, or walk away from the ministry. Um, he was about ready to give up. He was a pastor and the Lord uh, directed him, and, and we were able to meet, and uh, praise the Lord, he is being faithful uh, in his ministry and, and continuing to go forward. And as always, what we desire is we always want to replicate ourselves. We want to duplicate ourselves. We want uh, the people that we're pouring into to then turn around and pour into others. And so here is an example of that. Um, uh, pastor Andrew is staying up late after one of our trainings, and he's encouraging some of the provincial pastors out there, encouraging them in the word, um, you know, discipling them and, and talking to them. They complain to me after uh, the next morning because they are drinking coffee at midnight, and they're like, I don't understand why I couldn't sleep. <laughs> coffee, that's why. Um, and then Lon here, uh, he has been a disciple of mine for about three and a half years, and uh, about six months ago, he's like, okay, Trevor, I'm ready to disciple somebody else. I'm like, excellent. Let's go find somebody. And there was a, a young man at a coffee shop that we meet at often. His name is uh, Ratanak. And so he is, is uh, discipling him, and, and that's continuing even while we're here. And then my wife goes down, and, and there's a, a school uh, not too far from us, and she teaches some of the younger kids 
the Bible, and, and, and uh, we're going through the Old Testament right now in chronological order. So lots of different opportunities, lots of different ways, lots of different contexts that we're discipling. I say we get them young, middle-aged, old, and older, right? So God has brought them all into our life, and, and we're excited about that. Our main ministry is the Story of Hope training. So kind of the, the, the idea behind this is you have pastors that are out in the province, but they can't come to the capital city to go to the Bible school that's there because they can't leave their job, they can't leave their, their, their families for two to three years to be able to, to get educated and trained. And so what we felt was necessary is to go to them. And so we go to them, and we do about two days where we go through, currently we're going through Old Testament and New Testament survey. They get Old Testament survey in two days. Two days. And then we leave and come back a month later and they get the New Testament survey in two days. And at the end of those cumulative four days, they're able to actually articulate from memory in chronological order the major events in the Old Testament and the New Testament, all of it pointing to Christ and the cross and, and what he did for us. And, and they're able to do that from memory. And it's, a, it's such a blessing to see uh, these men and, and, and church leaders and, and even their, their congregation come out to, to these. So I have a, a video that I want to show you. This is our, our teacher, Story of Hope teachers that you see here. Sita on the left is our main ministry partner. Lon is one of my disciples, Andrew. Um, and then we have two others that aren't pictured here. But I'd like to show you this video. This is, kind of gives you an idea of what takes place in our trainings.
So you're just going to get a picture. So if you notice, we did a lot of different activities. There's some drawing that's going on. There's some acting out. Part of that is because in the country, there's an 80% literacy rate. But you get out of the city into the province, and that drops dramatically. Um, and so part of uh, our, our desire is to help them remember, help them just even understand. Uh, most of them read at about a third grade level. Uh, and so these different activities help them learn the Bible uh, in, a, in a, just a, a unique and different way and helps it stick for them. You also notice that we bring our children, right? We, we, we love to bring our children, let them get involved. This is our, our um, you know, our, some of our youngest ones are doing school while we're out there. Our, our Addie, she's grilling up some bananas over an open fire. Always delicious. If you never had a grilled banana, it's absolutely amazing. Do it. Uh, you know, our, our oldest two, they'll help with washing dishes, doing child care, helping set up. Uh, this is, uh, you know, a church in the province, and we were supposed to level, and that's supposed to be dirt. So uh, if you don't know, that's actually limestone, a pile of limestone. So that was really fun. We were literally throwing rocks uh, to, to smooth that out. Um, the other, so kind of out of this Story of Hope Academy, what we've come to find is we need translated work. We don't have it. Um, and so the idea is we go back over and over to these different places we visited to build upon the foundation and, and to really move their understanding of Scripture to an elevated point. But we need resources to do that. So we started this uh, translation team uh, that we're currently working on different, different works, different resources. These are some of the resources that we're looking at doing, hermeneutics, homiletics, church polity, um, and, and some other, other things. Uh, we really would love a study Bible uh, to, be, to be translated. That's a little bit above my pay grade. Um, but that is something that we're looking and trying to organize. And then part of it, and then what's kind of branched out from this, and this is all God's grace and what he's doing, is we've actually had some opportunities and meeting with different pastors and uh, individuals uh, from Laos, Vietnam, and Indonesia. Uh, And they've come to us and said, we want you to teach us what you're doing and help us get that started in our countries. And so uh, this man here, he's part Laos and part from the country that we're from. And uh, he was telling me, he told, after one of our training, he sat me down. And he said, I, I need to tell you something. I, I go out to the villages that are in our country, um, and they're, they're Laos villages. And he goes, I, I share the gospel, I evangelize, I witness. And he goes, I was witnessing one time, and uh, the village chief called me over and says, hey, you're, you're talking about the Bible, aren't you? He's like, Yeah. He goes, I want you to tell me what the Bible's all about. He's like, that's a big statement. That's, a, that's, that's heavy. He goes, I remember that you sent me this PDF of the story of hope. He goes, so I pulled it out, and uh, I started going through it with him for two and a half, three hours. And they get to the point where it comes to Christ and the cross, and the village chief stops him. He's like, you need to stop. I think what you're telling me is true. I want you to come back, and I want you to share this and teach my village what you're, what you're doing. And so these are just examples and stories that we're hearing and how God's moving and how he's using our country, which has been our prayers, that our country would be a, a launching point into some of the neighboring countries that are technically closed for uh, the gospel. And so these are different pastors that we've met from these different uh, countries. I'm not going to tell you which country they're from because I, I don't, just security issues. Um, but these are these different pastors that have asked, hey, I want you to come in to our country and uh, have these conversations and, and help us start. And so some of our future ministry plans, uh, we're doing a dorm ministry. 
Uh, that's uh, kind of an evangelistic outreach that we're doing for uh, teenagers. The median age of our country is 24. So imagine that, 24 years old. That's the median age, and it's actually, it feels like it's getting younger. Uh, doing some translation projects, and then uh, when we get back, we'll be looking at going into Laos, Vietnam, and Indonesia and helping them start what, in essence, we're doing uh, currently uh, in the provinces. So that's our future ministry plans and, and what we're doing. That's a little bit of our ministry. If you're interested and, and have more interested and have more questions, we have prayer cards. You can pick those up. Love to receive communication from you. Uh, we'll, we'll shoot you an email back, and, and you can stop us in the back, and I'd love to, to have conversations. But I want to take this moment in time just to thank you. I, I cannot stress that enough. Thank you for your prayers, for your support, for your investment in the work that's going on in our country. Um, it, it, it truly is an encouragement, and it's, it's humbling to even just be up here and, and to be able to tell you that. And so thank you very much um, from the bottom of our hearts what you're doing and your sacrifice in that way. Well, if you would, let's open the word together. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to talk about authentic contentment. You know, everything around us is built off this idea that you don't have enough to be satisfied. Advertising and marketing companies thrive off sowing seeds of discontentment. Whether it's the size of your house, the model of your vehicle, the clothes that you wear, the devices that we use, even the way we look. Makeup, plastic surgery, fitness gyms. If we just stop and observe what we're supposed to believe, what is constantly being fed to us in in subtle ways, it's that we should not be satisfied with what we have or what our life is like. We are are taught to be discontent. But the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy warning of this. He said this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. It's an interesting phrase. Godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This evening we are going to look at what Scripture has to say about contentment. Quite possibly one of the most challenging characteristics of a Christian is to exhibit, but one that I think is is severely neglected, just my opinion. This idea that we need something more, something better, something new, it's a lie straight from the devil himself. But the danger, the real danger is not this insatiable desire for wealth and stuff. But it's this discontentment that begins to creep into your spiritual life. It it, it seeps into our theology of what we believe about God and and how we respond to him 
when things go poorly in our life or when we don't have what we think we should have. Four years ago, my family and I moved to Southeast Asia as missionaries, and we had a plan. And that plan was to start some indigenous home churches. And I remember getting to our country and I looking out over the city of two million people and I was excited. I couldn't wait to get started. But little did I know that God was about to take a scalpel to my spiritual life and he was going to trim away the rotten flesh that is discontentment. Over the next three years, God was going to teach me a profound lesson. Christian contentment. Our first year in country went something like this. Just a a breakdown. This isn't meant for a woe is me, okay? This is just what happened. We arrived, $2,000 was stolen. We had rolling blackouts with no electricity for six to eight hours every day in 122 degree weather. Sometimes at night, children, our children were bullied by adults, which forced us to move houses. We had five moto accidents, one that resulted in a fractured elbow. We all had dengue fever, our whole family at the same time. We had sicknesses, literally sicknesses every two weeks that we were fighting, combating, some very serious I had a wallet that was stolen with my debit card and license and ID cards and all that and the pain that was to replace that. We had a trip to Thailand for medical emergency. We had multiple MRSA infections, required hospitalization. One of our kids sliced open their eye. We had an appliance explode in our home. We had, I had debilitating headaches for five months. It was all I could do to get out of bed and, 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 and move forward with the day. At one point, we were denied um, boarding a flight because they thought my wife was too pregnant to fly. We had a team leader die suddenly along with all of our ministry plans. And then COVID hit. And on top of all these physical hardships and challenges that we were faced with, what hit us the most, that gut punch was that all of our ministry plans, all of our ideas were gone. Churches were closed for two years. Any and all ministry contacts that we had died with our team leader. And so we were left wondering to ourselves, what are we even doing here? And at one point, I even looked at moving fields. Again, this isn't to make you feel sorry for our family or for you to commiserate with us. This isn't even, this isn't a woe is me. It's to tell you that at one very low point, a very challenging point, I was defeated. I had a mentality of why, God? Why will you not just give us a break? Let me catch my breath. Let me rally the troops. And the low point came on Thanksgiving of that first year. I had just flown back from Thailand where our team leader was in a coma about to die. And it's Thanksgiving Day and we have a, our, our family has this tradition of gathering around the dinner table and we, give, we tell what we're thankful for from God. And it starts from the youngest and we go to the oldest and it gets to me. And I just sat there. And I looked at my wife and I said, I, I don't know what to be thankful for. And being the good wife, sternly she said, you need to say something. <laughs> and so and with tongue in cheek, I, I kind of said, my pillow. And that sounds silly, but where we live, pillows are actually very expensive. They don't use them very often. 
But that one statement of thankfulness, as flippant as it was, opened the floodgates for me. Because it got my eyes off of me, off of my circumstance, off of what was going on, and it put my focus directly where it should have been, which is on God. And over the next 10 minutes, I could not stop praising God for all that he had done in our lives. And in that moment, in that midst of complete and utter defeat, I realized I had nothing to complain about. Nothing to be upset about. Who do I think that I am that I could expect anything from God? To some extent, my my beliefs, my theology was fleshed out in such a way that if I just lived for the Lord, sacrificed for my life, my job, my friends, my family, my church here in the U.S., to live in obedience, that God would honor that the way I feel he should honor it. That that he would bless it the way I feel he should bless it by protecting me from terrible tragedy, sickness, and trials. And intellectually, I knew better. First Corinthians, I could quote 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I knew that. And I knew that how I was feeling at that time was, was wrong. It was terrible theology, and it leads to discontentment. Discontentment in ministry, discontentment in relationships, discontentment in life. But when those trials came, the rod of discontentment was exposed, and God began to deal with it. And, and I came to Philippians. And this evening, I want to share with you what God, through these first four years of being on the field, taught me. In Philippians chapter 4, I want to give you just a a roadmap this evening. We're going to take a look at the what. We're going to take a look at the the when, the how, and the why. So what is contentment? When are we to be content? How are we to be content? And why are we to be content? And so if your Bibles are open, go ahead in in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Paul says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want or have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every way or every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Discontentment is one of those respectable hidden sins that we all want to look the other way. Discontentment manifests itself in different ways in all of us. Some, some want a better marriage. Some want a better job, a, a, a bigger house, a nicer car, a more fruitful ministry, more kids, less kids, more money to live closer to family. To get married, you name it, all of us struggle with this idea of being content. For me, it was discontent with how I felt that God protected or didn't while serving overseas. And if you're sitting here thinking to yourself, nah, Trev, I don't struggle with this. I want to ask you to reconsider. Because... This idea of contentment, it doesn't come easy. It doesn't come naturally for anyone. 
And the Apostle Paul here is writing to the church of Philippi from jail in Rome facing certain death. And at the end of this letter, he, he, he writes a, a sort of a thank you note, really, to the church of Philippi for a gift that they had sent. And, and all the times that they encouraged him and supported him throughout his ministry. And it's in the midst of this thank you that, that Paul reveals to us what, what he has gleaned during his life. It's as if Paul is, is reflecting back on what God has done and offers us some valuable information on contentment. And so we, we come to what is contentment. So what is contentment? Well, the Greek word for contentment means to be self-sufficient, to find resources in self, manage whatever one has. The, the noun variation of this is, is contentment, being satisfied in one's circumstance or position in life. To be satisfied in one's position or circumstance in life. The uh, Easton's Bible Dictionary says it this way. It says it's a, a state of mind in which one's desires are, are confined to his lot, whatever it may be. And then Jeremiah Burroughs, one of, a Puritan author, he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. That book beats you up. But he has this quote, and I love it. He defines Christian contentment this way. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Yes, contentment freely submits to God's plan in your life. Freely submits to God's plan in your life. It, it, it not only submits to God's plan, but it actually delights in it as well. Hmm. It's what Paul and James refer to when Paul says rejoice always. And James, consider all joy when you encounter various trials. It's not about submitting, but actually rejoicing and delighting in God's plan for your life. Whatever it may be. It's being satisfied with your plot in life, knowing that God's design and plan is infinitely better than what we could bring about on our own. It's an understanding of God's goodness and his graciousness. If we trust God with our eternal state, we need to trust him with our finite state, knowing that he will always bring glory to himself in every circumstance. So when are we to be content? Well, look with me in verse 11. When are we to be content? It says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And I want you to notice that, that Paul says that he learned to be content in whatever circumstance he was in. That's an interesting word. Again, the Greek here literally means to be taught to come to realize or, or understand. He came to understand what true content, contentment was. This was something that, that even the great apostle Paul learned throughout his ministry. He came to realize and understand how to be content through various circumstances that he came in contact with. And as we move through this short passage, you're going to see kind of this progression emerge. He begins with his ideas he had to learn or come to the understanding of contentment but then he moves into now possessing this knowledge of contentment. And look here in verse 12. In verse 12 he says, I know 
I know how to get along with humble means. So he had to learn and now he knows. And the word know here in the Greek means to have the knowledge of how to do an activity. How to do an activity. Paul uses this term two times in verse 12. And he's telling us that through various circumstances, he obtained the knowledge of how to be satisfied with his circumstances and position in life. He uses a figure of speech called merism. And merism is, is a rhetorical device or a figure of speech in which a combination of two contrasting parts of the whole refer to the whole. So, for example, humble means versus prosperity. Two contrasting parts, and it means everything in between. Being filled versus being hungry and everything in between. Having abundance and being in need and everything in between. And so we see here the, the first merism is humble means and prosperity. Humble means and prosperity. Paul tells us that, that he knows how to get along in humble means. And another way of saying this is, is being without honor. In what ways was Paul without honor? I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul kind of lists out some of his trials, some of his, his challenges that he was met with over the course of his ministry. If you're unfamiliar with this, this is a, a good snapshot of, of Acts and what we see in Acts as, as Paul goes about on his three missionary journeys. In verse 23, he says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23. Starting in verse 24, it says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. He has a lot of dangers. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all. The churches. Glad I'm not Paul. When we look at this, how is Paul living in humble means? Well, how about how many times that he was imprisoned, stoned, accused of false teaching? He was writing the epistle of the Philippians from, a, from prison, expecting death. Paul had to learn to get along even when things weren't going well or how he thought they should go or how he thought they should be. He had to learn that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's provision, whatever that may be. Turn back to Philippians chapter 4. In verse 12, he says, I also know how to live in prosperity. So there's the, the contrast. There's the other part of that, that mirrors and the contrasting part. Paul says that he learned how to live in prosperity. And I find this phrase interesting. Isn't it easy to live in prosperity? 
That's what the world would want you to believe. But living a godly life in prosperity is not as easy as you might expect because the Christian life requires us to surrender our passions, our desires, our ambitions to pursue Christ. Having wealth can cloud that judgment. It can blur the line. And when we have stuff, it's easy to want more and pretty soon we can find ourselves living discontentedly. Paul says that he had to learn how to live in prosperity. Now look, the last part of verse 12. It says, In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul once again uses the phrase to learn. However, this is a, a different Greek word than before. And it's used only here in the New Testament and refers to something mysterious. Something secretive, something that has been revealed to him. It's a passive voice, something that, that he has received, something has been unveiled to him. And he says that it, in any and every circumstance, the secret of being content has been revealed to him. And he uses the, the second merism of being filled and, and going hungry. If you ever want to check your heart, go a couple days without food. People tend to get more and more irritable and short-tempered when they're not fed. And we see that in Scripture even. The Lord provides sustenance and all of a sudden their spirit is revived and their attitude changes. And Paul's inference here is that no matter if you have plenty of food or are literally starving, contentment is the call of the Christian. The third merism that we see here is having abundance and suffering need. During times of abundance and when suffering in. Now the words abundance and prosperity are the same Greek words, which is to have excess or, or more than is needed. But the term suffering need is actually different than the term before humble means. Suffering need is to be destitute, to be poor, or have nothing, to be in need. Whereas the earlier term, humble means, is to make low in social status. And so we see the difference is one deals with the material and the other deals with the relational. Paul uses these three merisms to tell us when we need to be content. And when is it? All the time. There's under no, no circumstance at any point in time are we not to be content. This is when. It's not dependent upon your circumstance. You and I don't get to pick and choose when we are content. At some point in your walk with the Lord, contentment, you're going to need contentment as you face different trials and challenges. And if you don't have it, it can be challenging. Having that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every situation. So we have the what, we have the when, about the how. How can we be content? Well, Paul comes to the conclusion here in Philippians that there's a secret to all of this. There's a secret to living a contented life. Whether, whether you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death or laying down beside peaceful waters, Paul learned it and he tells us that, that there's a secret and he tells us what the secret is. Look in verse 13. Says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
Unfortunately, we've heard this verse used out of context numerous times. This isn't about climbing a mountain. It's not getting that job. It's not hitting that game-winning shot. Paul is unveiling here the secret to Christian contentment. The secret of being joyful with where God has you. And that secret is the power of Christ. It's Christ. Only by the power of Christ can we have this quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to God's plan for us. In a way, it's a testament to the saving work of the gospel in your life. A testimony and assurance of your salvation because this contentedness can only come from the power of Christ. In Hebrews, we learn that contentment comes from an unyielding, uncompromised, fixed gaze upon the Savior who came to earth as a baby. He subjected himself to his own creation. The creator, taking on the form of his creation, went to the cross, despising the shame so that I could be reconciled. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And this sin that, that so easily entangles us, it, it can be many different things. And I'm just going to plug in discontentment here. It says to cast it aside. The author of Hebrews encourages us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And notice it's, it's not the race that you choose. Because if I chose a race, I'm going downhill. Maybe with a a walking sidewalk. No obstacles. But it's not. It's the race that is set before you. The race that God has placed in front of you. And it it appears different for everyone. There are many different challenges that are going on in this congregation. I hear the prayer request. Many of you are, are suffering in ways that I can't even fathom. Take courage. That's the the race that God has set in front of you. And the author of Hebrews tells us here, he says, to run it. But the only way to run it well, to run it without being disqualified, is to fix your eyes on Christ. He says, consider Jesus when those trials threaten your contentment, your circumstances, your job, your marriage, your family, whatever it may be, when contentment creeps in, consider Christ who endured the cross who endured hostility by sinners against himself. Consider what our, that our creator was crucified for our sins so that we might be saved. Consider what he endured and don't lose heart. He says don't grow weary. The secret to being content is fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, it has a similar ex- exhortation. Paul says, He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, 
not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The way to have contentment is to seek the things above where Christ is, to set your mind, to dwell on the things above, not on the things on earth. The longer our eyes linger, the longer our gaze lingers here on worldly things, the easier it is to become discontent. But when we purpose in our hearts to fix our mind on eternity, knowing and understanding that our life is with Christ in God, how can we not demonstrate that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition? Now, why, as we close, why is contentment important? Why is exhibiting discontentment so wrong? Why am I hammering this 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 evening? Well, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 23, I I want you to listen to this. It says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. The fear of Yahweh leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. Notice that in order for someone to rest content, you must, fe- must first fear Yahweh. And that leads to life. If we are not willing to submit ourselves to the plan that God has given to us, because we are conversely not fearing the Lord. Instead, we are opposing the Lord. Discontentment equals distrust. There is nothing more evil than to oppose the one that is infinitely good. Not my quote, that's somebody I read. It's amazing. But when we fear God, when we understand that what we deserve is hell, that we deserve nothing good, we do not deserve good health, we do not deserve money, we do not deserve success, we do not deserve protection from trials and tribulations, if we understand this, if we truly grasp this, contentment envelops us. John Piper said this about contentment. He says, when you deserve hell, anything else is reason for celebrate. I forgot that three years ago. As I sat there at the dinner table defeated and frustrated with, God, with, with what God had dropped on my lap, thinking that I had nothing to be thankful for, I was woefully wrong. I would lost sight of what I really deserved and what I was rescued from. If I remember that Christ went to the cross for my sin, taking my place, bearing my shame, bearing my payment, becoming my guilt, so that God's wrath toward me is quenched, it's satisfied. If I remember that, everything else is reason to celebrate. Amen? Jerry Bridges said this, Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Until Christians can truly thank God for what they have and be willing to accept God's provision, contentment is not going to be possible. Now, just real quick application. This is not my idea. I don't remember where I got it from, but this is, I think, impactful. If you're having a hard time being content, here's what you do. Make a list. Draw a line 
and separate two different categories. And on the left, I want you to make a list of everything that you don't deserve. And then on the right, I want you to make a list of everything you deserve that you don't have. And if at the top of that list isn't hell, you don't understand the gospel truly. Because every single one of us here deserves nothing but eternal separation from God and hell. Contentment with godliness is great gain and is to be exhibited in all circumstances, achieved only by remembering and fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, which allows us to have that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Remember what the Apostle Paul says. For momentary and light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good. You're so gracious. When I look at what I deserve, words cannot describe how grateful I am for the cross, for the love that you showed us. Lord, as we go through the many challenges of life, May we look to you. May we have our eyes fixed on you. May we lean into your grace, lean into your mercy, lean into your sovereignty, knowing that you are the God that is in control. You're on your throne, you're ruling, and you're reigning, and nothing takes you by surprise. And may we say and sing with all our hearts that all I have is you, Christ. That is all we have. That is all we need. May you be glorified.